0: This program does not provide medical
1: advice. We assume no liability for the information provided on Mindforce Radio. Please consult your physician before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Hey, Bob, thanks for having me on the show. My name is David Ryder from Green Coast Springs, Florida. Uh, I first uh, worked with Bob when I was working in Baghdad, Iraq, during the height of the Iraq War. Uh, and I had a telephone consult- consultation with Bob at webstrengthcoach.com while I was on leave. Bob was very thorough and well-planned. We came up with a program for me that, that I could adjust it as needed, given the equipment available in often less than desirable locations. I wasn't new to strength training, but Bob cleared up many things for me and his approaches I still use. I worked up to 20 reps with 305 under his instruction and added 15 solid pounds of muscle in about eight weeks. If you need an honest strength coach who is the real deal, contact Bob at webstrengthcoach.com.
2: from mind force radio this is natural strength night with maximum bob on natural strength night we don't talk about the other things bob likes to talk about tonight we only talk strength training When I say strength training, I don't mean training like punk ass goons in the muscle magazines who jacked up on juice, steroids, and PEDs. I mean natural strength. Strength built on good food, heavy weights, and no shortcuts. If you want to learn about real natural strength, weight training the right way, the old school way, stick around. Bob and his friends just might teach you something. He's here, the host
1: of Natural Strength Night, Maximum Bob Whelan.
0: Tonight, my guest is Osmo Kiha, one of the most respected and knowledgeable guys in every aspect of the Iron Game, from the training, to competing, to the history, Osmo is second to none. He is also my best friend in the Iron Game. I've been talking to him regularly now for about 25 years. I consider him a brother. He is my go-to guy whenever I have a question about Iron Game history. Osmo helped me more with my book, Iron Nation, than anyone. It never would have got done without Osmo's help. In addition to being a true gentleman and a first-class guy, Osmo ranks as, pound for pound, one of the strongest Iron Game guys, too. At the age of just 21 years old, Osmo clean and jerked 418 pounds. He competed in the 1968 Senior Nationals in the 198-pound class, and at the age of only 21 years old, he retired from competition. Who knows what he could have done if he kept competing for another 10 years or so. He probably would would have been a world champion. Osmo is the founder and editor of the Iron Master magazine, which ran from 1989 to 2000. It was one of the highest quality and most informative Iron Game history magazines of all time. I'm proud to have written many articles for the Iron Master. Osmo is also one of the world's foremost experts on the history of physical culture and the Iron Game. He has one of the largest Iron Game memorabilia collections in the world. His house is literally a museum. Osmo is a true Iron Game hoarder. Osmo, buddy, it's great to have you on the show, and welcome to Natural Strength.
3: It's a pleasure to be on your show, Bob. After uh, what twenty-five years of talking to you, uh, here we are on the radio finally.
0: You were born and raised in Finland, and you lived there until you were about ten years old. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, I was. I was born in nineteen forty-seven uh, in La Peranda, Finland, which uh, is about nineteen miles from the Russian-Finnish border. Uh, of course, that happened after the war, before uh, nineteen forty-five. The Finnish uh line was much much bigger, so I mean the Russians took some of uh, about ten percent of Finland and uh after nineteen forty five the border moved closer so anyways uh we was able to see if you moved up uh from La to Imatra you could see the Russian border actually you could see the uh, machine gun nests uh sent by the dams up there. So it was, it was a very interesting time. Uh, it was a rough period uh, after the war. Uh, my dad worked for the post office, the Finnish post office. And uh, my mother worked for, uh, she did a lot of bakery work. And, and you know, I went through uh, like typical kids, run all over the place uh, during the summer. And I, I skied a tremendous amount, uh, which all thing kids do. I started skiing when I was two years old. And and I actually went into competition skiing competition, age uh competition when I was about five or six years old. And I did pretty well. And, and I think if I would have stayed in Finland, uh I think I would have become a cross country skier, probably a uh, national level. Which I which wow. uh you know, uh I don't think most Finns uh, ski in ever. You know, you skied till they ski until they're capable of standing up. Uh and uh I stayed in Finland until I was about 10 years old. But my dad, he, you know, he liked to uh, get in a car. Actually, it was one of the very few Finns probably after the war that had a car. And uh, he liked to travel all over Finland. We we took a trip one time from La Perenta all the way up to the top of Finland, which uh, if you look at Finland on the map today, you'll see it uh, looks like a person laying down with a one arm straight up. We took a trip right up to the top of Finland and uh we actually hiked up to the highest point in Finland, which is uh I think around forty three hundred feet. And uh I remember us coming down from that mountain and there's a lake down at the bottom. So me and my dad decided, you know, we're all sweaty and everything. We're gonna run in this lake and cool off. So I run in there, he's right behind me, and I'm telling you, it's like we run into an ice box.
1: This thing was
3: so, I'm not this thing was so cold, it's like everything froze. So come to find out, we found out the ice probably about two or three weeks before. That's why there was nobody else in there but us, you know, we're looking around, everybody's looking, at us like, well, what's these two fools doing, you know? And, um, <laughs> and <I'll, laughs> We're we're camping along. I remember one night we're camping along and, it was It was kind of hot that night, so my dad says, "Why don't you sleep in the car?" and uh we'll sleep in a tent on my sister and my mom and dad up on the hill, you know, looking down to the car so i'm I wake up in the morning and I feel this wet thing on my face, you know I'm thinking <laughs> what the, what the heck is that you know it's it's like whiskers on it, so I turn around and look. Scared the hell out of me. You know, I, I probably shrieked like a little girl. It was a reindeer, <laughs> stuck it it stuck its head through the window, and I scared the reindeer at the same time, and it blew all this snot over me. Uh. You know, and my dad's <laughs> my dad's up on the hill looking down, and laughing his ass off. You know, he said that he thought that was the funniest thing he's ever seen. But I tell you, you know, it, it was it was a wonderful trip. I remember reindeer; you could stand in one spot. And you couldn't see the beginning or the end of the reindeer. It's just huge amounts just running. I guess the lapliners were moving it from one place to another, but tremendous, tremendous amount. It was, it was a lot of fun. You know, Finland was a real nice experience.
0: Did you eat the reindeer meat?
3: You know, I tried it one time, and it was real salty. Uh, I don't know if that, that's the way they preserved it, but, uh, you know, it uh, wasn't wasn't to my liking. You, you know, maybe if you cooked it hmm. fresh, it might taste different. But
0: uh, yeah, like I can say but, I, I tried it. But. what are some of the biggest differences between the uh, the Finnish culture and uh, American culture?
3: You know, the biggest thing with the Finns is you well, know, I'm like I'm looking back when I was a kid. Now, you know, uh, if if you're in a grocery store and you're in line and you want to start a little side conversations with the guy in front of you, if, he's, if you mm-hmm. uh, speak up and ask him anything, the guy will say, he'll look at you like you're crazy, turn away, and I'll talk to you. Finns don't like to socialize out of the average family area. So, so they're really hard to <laughs> hard to get to know, at least back in the mm-hmm. old days. I don't know if they changed now today, but, uh, and Finns like to take the sauna. You know, we, uh, when I was a kid, uh. Once a week, we went and took the sauna. You know, you go in there and get all hot, bothered, and we used to run out and dive in the snowbank. Of, right. of course, this wasn't the pub. Yeah, this wasn't the public sauna. <laughs> you know, this was you know private sauna. <laughs> you know? And some guy, I remember my grandma. I mean, my grandfather telling me they used to dig a hole mm-hmm. in, in the ice, and, and he'd uh, take a sauna, and then they'd dive right in the ice, you know, in the hole, and swim in the lake. Um, right through the, uh, you know, frozen lake and then pop back, go back in the sauna again. Uh, I never tried that, but diving into a snowbank, that's a, that's an experience. You know, if you don't have a good yeah. heart, uh, I think you'll stop, you know.
0: How hot were those saunas over there? Yeah, you know, you
3: know I, I remember one time it got up to about 225 degrees. Uh, wow. You know, it's something you have to learn how to do. Otherwise you do not want to get uh, squashed in there and uh you, you know, people will keep you in and they won't let you out. So so uh they're hot. They're hot.
0: That's why the ice water felt so good after, right? Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
0: So Osmo is uh is Olympic lifting popular in Finland? You know, it is, it is. Uh or was. I
3: I don't know how it's doing today, but uh, in the 1960s, uh, you had Cangas Niemi and Cali uh both were world-class lifters. Cangas uh, Niemi won the uh, 1968 Olympics uh, in Mexico City uh, with over 1,100 total and a uh, tremendous lifter, tremendous lifter, and especially his snatch. He snatched uh, back then around 358 easily. Tremendous power. He used to say if his technique would have been better, he would have done much, much more, but I don't see how he could have improved any. Um, tremendous guy. And Cagliari's, uh there's a whole bunch of, I think there's four or five brothers all lifted and uh, tremendous lifters. Uh, you know, the top Cagliarri, I think he totaled around 10,065, somewhere around there in the 60s, which, which was a top lifter. You know, so, yeah, the Finns have a tremendous passion for it, yeah.
0: Yeah, before you came to the USA, you spent a while in Canada too. So you went from Finland to Canada, then the USA, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know what happened back after the war? uh, A lot of Finns left. You know, a lot of Finns went to uh, Australia, Canada, and US. And my dad wanted to go to US. In fact, he uh, applied to go there, but there was a quota. uh, How many people can leave the country and, and go to certain countries? And the code of the USA was real low. I think they waited for about three or four years. And finally, one of the people told him, he says, Why don't you go to, try to get Canada first and then move from there to US? So that's what we did. And he applied for it. And in 1958, we moved to Canada. Uh, in fact, it was uh, long, it took us almost two and a half days uh, when we flew from Helsinki. Um, it seemed like we went all over Europe. We went to Denmark, uh, went to Holland, to Germany, and then to England, Ireland, Scotland, and then finally hopped there to Iceland, and there to Canada. So it was, it was a two and a half day flight. And you got to remember hmm. one thing, nobody spoke any English. Uh, none of us spoke any English. You know, the only language we was comfortable was Finnish. So I don't I don't know how how my parents found their way, but we we found our way there finally. Uh, so February fourth, nineteen fifty eight, we arrived in Toronto, Canada. That was a that was experience coming from a little city, there those, about ten thousand people, and here I'm in the city it's probably about to uh, at that time probably nine hundred thousand people. You know, wow. with subways, streetcars, you name it. Uh, yeah. It was it was How, like coming to Disney, Disneyland, you know?
0: Wow. And you knew no English when you first got there? Ab- absolutely
3: none. We got there and six days later, me and my sister started school. So I remember going to, uh, it was called Runnymede Elementary School and uh, I started in fifth grade. And uh, they pointed out, this is your teacher, don't lose him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so, so I, you know, and we followed this guy. I followed this guy. He was in separate classes. My sister was in uh, third grade, I believe. But we, I followed this guy around, you know, in uh, like the first month or two. And, and uh, half the time, I, I didn't even know what was going on. You know, you sit in the class, just everybody's doing their thing, and you, you're just kind of wondering, uh, or, you know, what's, what's going on? The funny part is within, I don't know, three, four months, all of a sudden, you start to recognize words, and within six months, I got to the point where I could on, almost understand everything everybody's speaking, and maybe able to speak a little bit myself. And, and uh, But it took uh, close to a year till my English got better, you know, and then of course it improved as time went on. But uh, yeah, it was experience, you know. And then, you know, you get bullied when you first come to a new school, you know, speak the language, you know, bigger kids all pushing you around and, uh, you know, which is, I, I think it's normal, you, you know. During my time in Toronto, I think I went to a different school every every year. We spent five years in, in Toronto. We, we moved around a lot, you know, you're trying to get a better uh, place to live in. and So we moved around. I always had to start a new school. So I was always a new kid everywhere I went. So I got used to that, and and uh, but the reason I got used to that is I started lifting weights. I I got a little bit bigger than the rest of the kids and also stronger, you know. So that helped out a lot.
0: That was part of the motivation, right?
3: hmm Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I used to read comic books, and and uh, back then, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't understand English, so. so I'd look at the pictures. Do <laughs> you remember back at the comic books how Charles mm-hmm. Atlas, uh George, George Right.
0: you know? So you know, Osmo I, I'd, didn't I'd get want a dime to get from... sand kicked in his face from these wise no, kids. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: I looked at the comic books and I, I'd get a dime from my dad and uh I'd send them in and, and uh, you know, then about four weeks later you get these little booklets, you know, it says join by the course. You know, and of course, being a kid, you know, it said $35, uh, so and we'll send you your course. Nobody ever had $35. I think my dad was making 30, $35 a week back then. Who knows? So then if you weigh it around, pretty soon, the, you know, the course would cost eventually about $5 to $10, you know. But, I, of course, it didn't have that money either. But, but uh, you know, there was a lot of pictures on there. So what I did, instead of, you know, going around buying weights, which I had no money for, I, I took out house bricks and cut a hole in it and put a broom handle through, made my own dumbbells, made my own barbells. And, you know, house brick weighs about uh, five or six pounds. So if you had enough on there, you can make some kind of a uh, strength move out of it. And that's where I did start working out. And and then uh, about a year later, my dad bought me uh, chest expanders, you know, like, whitely put out uh, mm-hmm. those uh, uh, springs, you know, I got five springs on it worked with yep. them and uh, in 1960 my dad went out to Simpson and Eaton's which was the bigger uh, stores down in Toronto and bought me a weeder keep fit dumbbells they weighed 15 pounds piece and I started working out with them you know things moved along and then uh I worked with them and did push-ups and all kinds of and then in 1961 I, I decided I turned 14 years old by then and uh in fact, I tried to get into the YMCA uh, workout and they said, no, you can't lift weights until you're 16 years old. And, but the Jewish YMHA said, you can lift weights at 13. So I, I joined with them. It cost me 10 bucks a year and, uh, started lifting weights, uh, and learned how to do the Olympic lifts, the power lifts and so forth. And, and did that till I moved, till we moved to uh, the United States. So, uh. It was an interesting experience back then.
0: So you moved to California, right?
3: Yeah. And my dad, like I said, as soon as we got to Canada, I think my dad applied to go to the U.S. So it it Mm -hmm. took a number of years. And and finally, you know, the word came out that you can go and use your passports. And and we moved to uh, California. He had a small 57 English console, which looked like a 55 Ford. You know this is a small small car, with a four cylinder engine, probably about fifty horsepower, and we had this huge trailer behind, it, which was bigger than the car, so we put all our junk in it and and uh I had to leave my weights behind. My dad said they weighed too much all my thirty pounds weights and and my springs and everything got left behind but anyways so we're we're driving into Canada I mean from Canada to the u s went through uh detroit and and uh I think we got on Route 66 eventually and traveled through that. But I remember us going through Kansas with that big trailer, and the wind was blowing so hard, being flat. You know, I think in Kansas you can stand on a box and see the other side. But but mm-hmm. uh, the wind was blowing so hard. Um, the car couldn't get past 30 miles an hour, you know, so we're plugging, holding <laughs> up traffic half the places. But eventually, eventually, it took us uh, almost 10 days we finally got to California, to Los Angeles, and, wow. and you know, first the, I I remember uh, we came through Las Vegas, through down that way, you know, through the desert, and finally got into uh, California, and all of a sudden you start seeing palm trees, you know, stuff like that. It's nice and warm. Canada, I, I remember Canada was so cold sometimes, you know, you hit forty below zero. Yeah, you know, of course wow. you know that you live on the east coast. So anyway. Uh, down to Los Angeles. Beautiful weather. Beautiful weather. You know, very little smog back then in those days. And uh, somehow we got, went through Santa Monica. I don't know how, we, I think we got lost. I mean, down in Santa Monica. So we could see the ocean at that time. And finally, my dad finally, wait, you know, he was going to one of his friends, you know, that we was going to stay with for a couple of weeks till we got situated. But uh, yeah, it was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, for a young kid to move into California, that was like a dream, you know, especially if you read the Weeder magazines back then, you know, Muscle Beach and all right. the beautiful girls and all that stuff down there. So anyway, You were right there. He was right there, uh, you know. Uh, you know. And and finally, we got to this place. where We stayed for two weeks. And then eventually, my dad got an apartment building and we got situated and uh, I went to uh, Panama City High School uh, for about four four months, and, and then finally got situated in Van Nuys, California, which is where we lived till I went in the service. Very very interesting times.
0: What were some of the gyms when you first went to California? And you, you know, you had to leave your weights behind up there in Canada. What were some of the early gyms you trained at when you first moved to California? You know, I uh, actually didn't
3: train at anybody's gym for any length of time, but I did uh, go to one of Vince Garana's gyms. He had a gym originally in Van Nuys, California. You know, most people think Vince only had one gym, uh, but Vince actually had five gyms at one time in, in the 50s. But he had mm-hmm. a gym in Van Nuys, California, which was only about two miles from my house. And what he done is he sold his gym to Rex Revell. He was one of the early physique champion. So I think he ran some gyms in Honolulu, Hawaii at one time. But anyways, Rex had a gym down there. And so I went down there and he looks at me and says, you know, kid, you could be a Mr. America. Of course, you know, I think he was saying that. So he'd sign me up, you know. Then he looked at my buddy and says, no, nope, you'll never make it. You're too skinny. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so he said, you know what I'll do for you, kid? And he says, I'll give you two months of free gym time. And after two months, if you don't like it, you don't have to pay nothing. You just go on your way. So I I worked out two months in uh, Rex Rebell's gym right on Van Nuys Boulevard. No, no, it wasn't. It's on Victory Boulevard, a corner of Victory and Van Nuys, pretty close to that corner. And uh, learned learned kind of how to do things that I didn't know before, especially towards bodybuilding. Uh, Because before that, I was more interested in... uh, Olympic lifting and powerlifting. So Rex kind of taught me how to do uh, the uh, bodybuilding exercises and so forth. And uh, but you know, one thing he installed on me, he says you got to get bigger. So you know, every every time I read a magazine, you know, especially weeder magazines, it said, uh, "Eat this stuff here and buy these supplements, and you can grow twenty, thirty pounds bigger." So of course, I didn't have any money to buy any supplements, but you know. So I, I went home and usually ate more. I ate. <laughs> I think my dad was ready to throw me out and say, go get four jobs, kid. You're eating the house out of everything. <laughs> uh, so, so I I put on a lot of weight. When I got to California, I weighed about 160 pounds. Within one year, I was up to 200 pounds. It, how tall it, you were know, you? Gained weight. I was about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, somewhere around <clears> there, <throat> there at the time. And... You know, at that age, uh, it wasn't all muscle. You know, it was kind of all baby fat on there. But I tell you, I got stronger, tremendously strong. Uh, Age of uh, 16, 17, I was benching well over 300 by then. But, you know, it it wasn't a good thing to do. If I had to do it all over again, I would never do that. You know, I would leave my weight where it was and let it slowly come up on its own instead of forcing it up. Uh, Anyways, I worked out of his gym for a while, and then uh, we used to make trips down to Vince's gym, which was on Ventura Boulevard. That's after I got a car, you know, and uh, Vince was a funny character. Uh, The first time I went in there and, you know, he looks at me and, uh, do you want to join Gym Kid? I I said, no, I'm here to look, and he just turned his back and walked off. He figured, I guess, you know, there's no money in this dude. so. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I I made a lot of trips. I remember one time I, I went in his gym and he had all these books in his office, you know, how to build bigger biceps, how to how to bulk up and how how to do everything. So I picked this book up, I'm looking at it, and Vince comes from the back and says, uh, What are you doing? But so this ain't a library. You know, you don't come here and read books and rips the book out of my hand and puts it up <laughs> back up on the shelf and turns around and walks off. <laughs> so I figured, well well, okay, buddy, you know. So he went in the back, I took all his all his books and rearranged them all. Put them all backwards uh. and everything else and walked out of the gym. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, I I've, I've been there yeah. other times that he was absolutely the nicest person you ever want to run into, you know. So I I think it was just uh, on a day you got him. I, I can imagine right. uh spending a lot of time in the gym, as you know, you know, you train people. Uh
1: yeah. some
3: days on not good days, so yep. I must have hit him on some bad days and good days.
0: Did you also get uh, some equipment and train in your in your uh, garage or something too? You
3: know uh, what? What I did is when we lived in an apartment building, and I, I trained in the back. There was a little grass area back there, and um, eventually I had probably close to a thousand pounds of weight, and you know had the original five foot bar with the little sleeve on it, and, and uh, a couple of dumbbells. And uh a bench, of course I had a weight uh bench press bench. And uh I, I traded in the back over there, you know, I think I was nuts out there, you know, lifting weights uh <laughs> late at night, during the morning and everything else. Eventually some of the people in the apartment used to come out and, you know, work out with me. Uh funniest part, I was one time I was back there and I was deadlifting and, and I worked up to four hundred pound deadlift, you know, on uh, exercise bar. Yeah, this little guy comes out of, out of the uh, apartment below, below us, and he was a carpenter by trade. He weighs about 125 to 130 pounds. So he comes up to me and says, kid, what are you doing back there? I said, I'm I'm doing deadlifts. He says, what is that? So I showed him what it was. So he goes there, 400 pounds, no warm-up, no nothing, and hauls it up. I, I, I could wow. not believe that. You, you know, at that time, I was weighing over 200, you know. Just uh, shows you some people are just strong without any training, you know, from manual work. But you know, his his body weight uh, was unbelievable, and and I was using 25 pound plates, you know, which makes the bar even closer to the gram. So it was one hell of a deadlift for this guy. Uh, what was the but, guy's you know, name? Do you remember? Well, I, I remember he's a Finnish guy, but I can't remember his name anymore. Uh, he wasn't a weightlifter, just a regular guy living in an apartment, but.
2: Oh my gosh, We fun. didn't
3: even train. Mm, never, wow. never train his
0: life. Never. Who had the most influence on your early lifting career? You know, that, that's hard to
3: say. But, but I think the most influence come out of Strength and Health magazines. Um, it, you, know, you know, Bob Hoffman. You know, he. Uh, I used to read his editorials and, and uh, his stuff in his magazines and. I, I think that kind of got me going more than anybody else. Uh, you know, he used to put out, you know, lift weights, and you'll get healthy, and you'll get big, and you'll get strong. Uh, even though I read Weider magazines, you know, you know, but Hoffman, I think, was the number one source for me to get going, you know. Mm-hmm. Not anybody local, you know. But later on, uh, Bob Heiss entered the picture, Uh as I as I oh, grew yeah. up. You know, Bob was Bob was one of the top uh trainers, Olympic barbell, you know, lifting trainers probably in in the United States at the time. And so
0: mm-hmm.
3: he helped out and uh you know, I went from there.
0: We'll be back with more right after this.
4: This segment brought to you by VitalNutritionStore.com. Did you know that more than 7 million Americans suffer from coronary heart disease, the most common form of heart disease? Regardless of your age or condition, adding Cardio for Life to your daily regime will dramatically improve your cardiovascular condition. Cardio for Life has been the top-selling enlarginine product in the marketplace now for more than three years. It is also the top-selling product at VitalNutritionStore.com. Formulated by Dr. Harry Elwart, the best-selling author of Let's Stop the Number One Killer of Americans Today, Dr. Harry believes together we can prevent and reverse heart disease. Cardio for Life comes in three wonderful flavors, orange, peach, and grape, and is gluten-free, sugar-free, and sodium-free. Please see our complete line of natural products at vitalnutritionstore.com. That's V-I-T-A-L nutritionstore.com.
5: Randy Roach shocked the world with the release of his first volume of Muscle Smoke and Mirrors several years ago. It was a masterpiece of over 500 pages with such in depth research and detail that it was not only surprising, but shocking and mind blowing. It was truly one of the best iron game history books ever written. He followed that with volume two, another epic book with over 700 pages of equal depth and detail. All serious Iron Game fans need to have these books. Please visit Randy's website at randyroach.ca. That's
2: R-A-N-D-Y-R-O-A-C-H dot C-A. Listen to how Iron Game legend and the Iron Master editor, Osmo Kiha, describes the book, Supernatural Strength. Have you ever wondered how much real-world experience authors have when they write books about weight training? Who is that person behind the computer? What do they really know about the Iron Game? If you picked up this book, Supernatural Strength, you have definitely come to the right place. The author, Bob Whalen, has spent several decades in the Iron Game trenches, training himself, competing and coaching in powerlifting earning academic credentials too numerous to mention, and thousands of hours of training and instructing athletes and trainees of all levels at his Washington, D.C. gym since 1990. He's not only devoted his life to motivating and pushing people to heights they have never been to, but elevating the trainees' understanding why certain methods work better than others. Bob is one of the most respected and revered trainers in the business today. This book is sure to surprise and amaze you at the same time. Order now at SupernaturalStrength.com. That's SupernaturalStrength.com. Don't you think it would be so much easier
4: getting into shape if you had a personal coach, just like all the celebrities do? Well, now you can. Bob Whalen of webstrengthcoach.com wants to get you out of your rut and coach you to success. He's dedicated to helping you achieve your strength and fitness goals through your hard work and his expert guidance. Bob will help you with strength training, muscle building, fitness, nutrition, and motivation. He'll make sure you achieve your maximum physical potential. You can get one-on-one training with Bob through his website, webstrengthcoach.com. He will develop a personalized program tailored to your individual needs, a program right for you. Bob will give you feedback after every workout. This is old school fitness and nutrition, no fads and no gimmicks. Bob will use proven natural techniques to make sure you are satisfied. So visit webstrengthcoach.com today and let Bob help you reach your best self, webstrengthcoach.com.
5: Do you enjoy history without social engineering, reading about our founding fathers, economics from a capitalist perspective, wisdom from modern patriots? Welcome to UncleSamBooks.com, where virtues like rugged individualism, hard work, and the American dream dominate. UncleSamBooks.com. Great books for homeschooling. UncleSamBooks.com. If you want to become as strong and muscular as possible with health in mind and without lowering yourself to using steroids, the best advice can be found in the classic strongman books of long ago. These are the best books ever written on the subjects of strength training, weightlifting, strongman training, iron game history, and old-time physical culture. Many of them can still be found at physicalculturebooks.com. There you will find good, Honest, time-tested wisdom from the great old-time strongmen. To maximize your natural muscular and strength potential, please visit physicalculturebooks.com.
2: Listen to Ken Manny, head strength and conditioning coach at Michigan State University, describe the book Iron Nation, a masterpiece text on some of the most intriguing and compelling personal stories, iron game history, and gut-wrenching training routines ever put to paper. If you truly love hard training without all the frills of pomp and circumstance so common today, you will love Iron Nation. Written by lifters for lifters. If you love weight training, you will love Iron Nation. Order now at ironnation.com. That's nation.com. If you would like to promote your business on Mindforce Radio, we would love to hear from you. Please let us know if you are interested in a 30- or 60-second voice commercial or a banner website ad. Please contact Bob using the contact information provided on MindForceRadio.com.
1: You're listening to Natural Strength Night on MindForce Radio.
0: you went in the air force then you you also competed in olympic lifting while you were in the air force yeah.
3: too how how that worked out you know i i started competing in the los angeles area in 1964 and i went through the uh, junior contest and and the novice contest and everything else and worked up the senior contest but in 1966 uh uh i went in the air force and and uh went through boot camp and all that you know and uh I got stationed in Victorville, California. And uh one day I was I was sitting in my barracks and the and the guy comes on, Hey you got a phone call and so I got on the phone and it was Homer Branham. He called me. Now Homer was one of the top lightweight lifters in the United States, probably in in probably in the top twenty five thirty in the world at the time. So I, I was just flabbergasted. And why is this guy calling me? So he called me. He says, I got a word from Bob Heiss in Los Angeles that you're an Olympic lifter. And we're having a tryout for the Air Force team. Would you like to come down to Norton Air Force Base, which was in San Bernardino, and try out? So I, I drove down there the following weekend and uh, lifted for... Homer, and, and he took one look at me. Of course, I was weighing about 200 or something. You know, and he says, here, uh, I'm going to tell you what, kid. He says, he gave me this program, you know, exercise written down how to do everything. He says, come back in six months, and we'll try it again. So I worked out on this program. I lost down to 100, about 178 pounds because he had me running and, and working out. In fact, some of the workouts took two, three hours. You know, wow. every day. Yeah. So I came. When I first went down there, I, I think I, you know, what I press? I pressed around 250, snatched 235, and I think I cleaned 290 and, and jerked it. You know, somewhere around there, weighing about 205. And I, I guess he felt that wasn't good enough to do anything. So he sent me home. I came back six months later, and I pressed 260. I snatched two forty and clean jerk three hundred, weighing one hundred eighty one pounds. So that's that's how I got, yeah, that's how I got on the team. And uh, of course, uh, Homer probably was one of the best trainers uh, anywhere in the world. I think, in my opinion, Uh, he completely changed my technique and everything else. And that that took a lot of doing. I'm telling you, Uh, you know, when you learn how to lift by itself, you develop all these bad habits. I was pulling completely wrong, uh, way out in front, and you you name it, I was doing it wrong. So we had to change the whole technique, and I worked out with, uh, you know, almost an empty bar for a good uh, six weeks, till I got Mm -hmm. the hang of the new technique, and then we went from there. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I competed all over the United States uh, with the Air Force team. We we traveled quite a bit, and uh, I went to all the contests uh, <clears throat> everywhere, and and my list eventually. around March 1968, I had a contest at the uh, Air Force Gym. In fact, what I did is I qualified as a 242 power lifter just in case Jim Gargano something happened to Jim. So um, Bob Heist set up a deal. Well, I qualified. I was the only only lifter, and and I did three twenty five, two eighty six, and three seventy four for a nine eighty five total as a two forty two pound lifter. But I only weighed around two hundred eight pounds. Um, hmm. and also, by that time, I qualified as a one ninety eight lifter. So, but uh, uh, you know, you know, my lift total went up uh, almost from my eight hundred pounds total to almost. 986 in a period of less than 2 years. So it shows you wow. how good a coach uh Homer was, you know. Uh, by the way that you know that total would have placed me uh probably in the top 30 in the world at the time at the time. And uh wow. then I competed uh right after that in senior nationals uh uh, things didn't go as well as I expected. You know, being the first huge contest or big contest I uh, ever lifted in, I was kind of nervous and so forth. So, But uh, I did 295, 270, and 360 uh, for 925 at Senior Nationals at a 198-pound lifter. Yeah, I cleaned 380, and I was about to jerk it. I heard this guy say, oh, he'll never... Jerked that <laughs> so you, you know I got kind of distracted, I missed a jerk uh, It that went up, but it was a little bit through the front and came down and uh hmm. so Homer says that went went pretty good we will we'll take three ninety next. <clears throat> I pulled the three ninety in, but I pulled it so high it fell on me you know you huh. gotta meet a bar otherwise you can you know, so it squashed me down, and I couldn't get up with it, so I had to dump it uh, but
1: uh oh.
3: That that was my actual last Olympic lifting contest I ever, uh, entered. Uh, we had some problems. My father had come up and so, uh, I couldn't compete anymore, but I think if I could have been, had two more years of training, uh, I would have won the senior nationals, possibly, uh, the world championships down the line, not being, uh, you, you know, but, uh, uh, I I think I had the ability, but this didn't work out that way.
0: Uh, now your your best cleaning jerk, you put over four hundred pounds over your head, right? Yes yes I did. um uh, uh August
3: twenty fourth, nineteen sixty eight, at the Valley College in San Fernando Valley I was a, it was a Saturday um workout and I haven't done any yet lifts. I, I've been working on a clean jerk for the last couple months uh, after the senior nationals, and one uh, uh, we, of I went in there and I worked up to 360 real easy. I mean, the weight felt like it was nothing. So, uh, so then I increased to 380. Same thing went up real easy. Jumped to 400. I figured, well, never make that, you know. But so I went out and got all pumped up and cleaned it jerked it easy, unbelievably. I I couldn't believe it. So I I told the guys, load it to 410, and I'll see if I can make a brand new record for me. You know, one that will stand in my mind, probably forever, you know, because I I probably never worked that heavy again. And uh, so I went in, I went to the back, got all hyped up and everything, came out, cleaned it. It It's one of those lists I remember forever. I cleaned it, it was so easy. It's like it weighed nothing, nothing. Mm -hmm. Pulled it in, popped it up, jerked it easy, put it down. I'm looking at the barbell, and it says, hey, you guys, uh, that's not 410. That's 420. They loaded it to 420. Uh, I guess they got the 10s and the 5s confused. So we put the thing on the scale, and it weighed 418 pounds. It was a York bar, York weights. Yeah, yeah. and like I said, I weigh two hundred eight, but you know I'm, I'm cl- including my shoes and uh, workout, so I probably probably weigh two hundred three or something. Actually, uh, yeah, it was it was a tremendous lift. Uh, I'm telling that is you,
0: phenomenal. Uh,
3: yeah, if I would have went into the one ninety eight class, you know, if i had a weighed in that, it'd have been one of the top lifts of the year. Uh, but of course, of course, this is a training lift. It doesn't count, <laughs> you know, only official let's count, but but I did do it, and, and there was a whole bunch of people watched me do it, so, uh, nevertheless, I did it, but not official, not official, so, so only oh, official awesome. lifts awesome. count, awesome.
0: yeah, yeah. Best snatch you ever did?
3: Best snatch I did was 286, uh, which I did in March of 68, and the best uh, clean and press I did it was 3:30. I uh, was, <coughs> excuse me, I was also done the training. That guy, I that's, remember, that's uh, phenomenal. Uh, yeah, Tom Hertz and uh, Peter Rollick were in there. watched me, watch me do it. That was another of those that, you know, you, you, everything went just perfectly. Weight come up real easy. Stood there and just pressed it up, no problem. Uh, you know, one of those things I, I should have took 3:40 and tried it, but but I didn't.
1: Yeah,
3: uh, in fact, I remember uh, shortly after I got done, Homer come in and yelled at me. Didn't know what the hell I was doing, <laughs> pressing that kind of weight that the, progr- that the program didn't call for. I think the program called for like two eighty-five or something. But you know, I had a good day, so I <laughs> pushed it up. Yeah,
1: that's uh, awesome.
3: He used to, yeah, he used to lay out a deal saying, "This is what I want you to do this day, and don't do any more." But you know, mm-hmm. being a kid, and you know, some days. Coach wasn't around, so he just did whatever he wanted to. <laughs> so,
0: but, How old uh, were you when you made your best uh, clean and jerk? I was, on uh,
3: see 1968, so I would have put me at uh, 21, 21.
0: You hadn't even reached your potential yeah, I, at I, all. I mean, you, most no, guys no, get I stronger until their late 20s, 30s.
3: Absolutely. You know, like I said, I, I think if I would have had two more lifting with Homer coaching me, uh, I, I think I would have made it to world championships, you, you know.
0: But things don't always go well, imagine, like you want to, you know. Imagine what you could have done if you had 10 or 15 more years.
3: Oh, I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah,
0: you could have been yeah. world champion. That's that's uh, amazing, Osmond. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. I know uh, one of your other passions is memorabilia, and I know you're you're one of the most respected Iron Game historians in the world, and you have one of the largest... Iron Game memorabilia collections in the world, and you've been telling me for like 25 years all about your house. Like, it's a bit like a museum. And I remember when you moved from Salt Lake City to uh, 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 Oregon, where you are now, it was just – I think you said it took like 10 years off your life because you had so much stuff to move, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now you have like a library where you have bookshelves You told me all about this. You have uh, like rooms of bookshelves for all your books and all your magazines. And I think at one time, I'm not sure if you're still doing this, but at one time you said that every single physical culture, Iron Game, and Muscle Magazine in the world, you were getting it. Uh, And even if you didn't read it, you were getting it. And you just put them all on your bookshelves. You just got rooms of shelves of books and magazines, and you got equipment. You got Jackson bars and plates. You got... You know, all kinds of antique globe barbells and stuff from uh, the late 1800s. I mean, you're, tell us about your uh, home museum.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. Uh, when I left uh, Salt Lake, you know, the reason we left Salt Lake, I'll give a little background on that. Uh, I worked for the railroad, Union Pacific Railroad, and they closed the shop in Salt Lake, uh, which stayed they- later found out it was a bad move, but, you know, once you close them and take everything out, you can't redo it. But anyway, so we moved to Hermiston, Oregon, which is in the Umatilla Desert. I mean, have you ever been out here? You think of Oregon, you think of trees, you know, beautiful lakes, trees, mountains. Well, none mm-hmm. of that's here. <laughs> this is strictly desert, sand, wind blowing, you know, here we mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways. When we moved, it took a trailer, a 53-foot trailer, which was mostly my stuff, not our furniture, mostly everything I have, you know, my weights, books. Uh, in fact, it took two weeks for me to box my books and, and magazines and everything else I have and, and put it in the trailer. I remember we had the trailer completely full, and I kept telling the guy, don't put the dumbbells in front of the trailer. Because when you go weigh it, it's, it's going to be completely in the wrong position. He said, I know what I'm doing. So he put 10,000 pounds of dumbbells in the front. And, of course, when he went to weigh it, the guy said, hey, you got you to gotta unload this and redo the whole thing. To unload the whole trailer, put it in another trailer, re, reposition everything, and brought it up here. Uh, we moved probably, I think at I had about thirty thousand pounds of worth of stuff when we moved it here. Uh, wow! You know, barbells, dumbbells, uh, books, you, you name it. Uh, in fact, I remember I, I put seventy-five or eighty boxes of books, big big boxes of books and magazine when I moved it up here. And we moved from a house that was bigger than one I moved into, except we we had a bigger garage here, so. When I got it up here, I had to build bookshelves, uh, everything. In fact, I got uh, one room completely so full of books and everything. Every time I bring something in, it I got to move something else out because there's no place to put it anymore. Uh, I got stuff in the hallways. Uh, my garage, I got a three-car garage, which I had built bigger than the normal garages. And that's completely full, except for one place where my wife, Ray, parks her car she says you ain't putting nothing there uh my car's gonna go in there so that's the only place that isn't full of stuff um and i've been collecting the stuff since 1959 uh, so uh, i have a tremendous amount of magazines i i figure i got about 4,000 or more magazines uh single copies different copies i i have stuff all the way from uh Strength Magazine, which started in 1914, and uh, almost every weeder magazine ever put out, All Strength and Health, Iron Man, Muscle Illustrated, Muscular Development, you know, you name it, it's here. I have most of the books uh, put out in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s uh, in here. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe probably over a thousand books, booklets. Uh, pictures, uh posters, uh films, you know. In fact I've lost count of half this stuff. I got so much stuff I don't know what to do with it anymore. Um and then barbells I collect now I, you know I later on I started collecting barbells. Uh I have the Milo Globes, uh early ones, uh triplex, uh standard and the large large duplexes. Uh, and in fact the one time I made my own globes, uh, the iron master dumbbell, which looks like the Milo uh large duplex dumbbell, except it's a little bit bigger and a hell of a lot better looking. Uh you know, I have three uh, of them. Giant... Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I sold you some <laughs> Yeah, better looking dumbbells. And uh then one time I, I got this kick I'm gonna collect Olympic bars and now I have thirty five different Olympic bars, you know, from, uh, the old York bars to Marcy, uh, Paramount, Jackson, uh, and everything else in between. Ivankos, uh, Illico's, Burke bars. And I've been trying to catch up with some of the plates that go on these bars. So, uh, um, I do have a complete 1A Jackson set, uh, which Andy Jackson made in nineteen fifty 1950, yeah nineteen fifty nine and i actually have all the paperwork for that, so I know that he actually built this set and it wasn't built in the machine shop somewhere uh so and and I' completely reconditioned that, so it's a beautiful set uh so if you come in my garage, you know you can see how how the weight game went from 1900s to today. You know, I got something from each period uh, on display, uh, including new York uh, Standard Weights. Uh, in fact, I have a uh, new uh, leader set built in the 60s. Uh, well, I call it new because I completely reconditioned it, and it looks like brand new. Um, and like I said, everything's in and also, I have this huge globe set that used to belong to Leo Stern, 22-inch globes, round globes that Bill uh, Pearl used to lift in his exhibitions. It weighed 308 pounds empty. Now, you can load this thing down to 1,000 pounds, I think. But the bar was so springy when you pulled on it about seven, eight inches, the globes were still on the ground. And then it would spring up and, and, and come up. So, according to Leo... There's only one person ever cleaned that. Not a continental clean, you know, without touching the body, pulled it to his shoulders and jerked it over here. So Bill used to tell me he used to continental that thing up all the time and then jerk it. Uh, but, you know, by the time I got it, my shoulders were so bad, I never had a chance to try to lift it. But I could see where it'd be a tremendous, uh, cumbersome item to lift. Uh, but, like I said, everything's here. I got everything if you want to come and look at it. Anybody in the audience that like to come down and visit, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> learning about history of uh, the Iron Game.
0: <laughs> what What do you consider some of your favorite, you know, rarest pieces in your collection?
3: Yeah, I, I think part of my paper stuff goes uh, my Iron Man magazines from the in the beginning. I I have is volume uh, five on up. I have every Iron Man until John Bailey. Bought the magazine. Uh, I, th- I think I would consider those my number one. Uh, what would I say? My number one issues, you, you know. And then uh, my Jackson set, and then my Milos. Uh, what I would wow. consider my greatest. Uh, but uh, it's you know it's, it's hard to put your hand on because I, I got so many. Things. In fact, I even have a poster of the 1939 Mister America contest that George, uh, the first one, put out the Goodrich one. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was in June of 1939, I had that actual wow. poster. So so he, I have a lot of things that are, that are worth a lot of money. You know, in fact, my wife always tells me, just put down what each thing is and what it's worth. Which, you know, I said, well, how in the hell am I going to do that? I got thousands of items. She says, "Ever something ever happens to you, what am I going to do with them? I said, take them to the dump. <laughs> don't worry about it, <laughs> you, you know,
1: <laughs>
3: you, you know, who cares? I can't, you know, I'm done playing with him. So what well, does not matter anymore? You know, you know. but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, you, you can have one piece of paper, uh, that someone signed it, you know, some famous person, it can be worth 15, 20 bucks that, that, you mm-hmm. know, somebody else would come along and think, well, it's just a piece of paper and throw it away, you know? So, and I have thousands of those. So <laughs> who knows? Who knows? I still continue to collect because you can't get it right. all. You know.
0: You don't still get all the magazines, do you? No, I, I kind of, you know, I stopped
3: at about 2000 something. I can't remember, about 2003 or 2004. Uh, the magazines kind of got to a point where there's nothing interesting for me in them anymore. That doesn't mean they're not interesting magazines, but I, I've kind of lost... Interest in him, you know, it's mostly uh, bodybuilding and a lot of the uh, old timers that they used to include in were no longer there. I guess the readers weren't interested, and no Olympic lifting. So I, I just could could completely read. And the only magazine I get continuously is the Iron Game History, which comes out of uh, Austin, Texas, from Terry Todd.
0: Terry uh, Todd, yeah, which, that's a good one. Yeah. I,
3: yeah, I love that magazine. You know, it's got the history of the game. So that's about the only one. I did get Milo's for a while. Uh, I, I know. Good magazine, but it seemed like I, for some reason I forgot to resubscribe. I'll have to do that this year. But uh, but once in a while, I'll pick up a magazine and kind of I go to Walmart and go out and look and see what's what's going on. But I still I don't buy them anymore. You know, first of all, there's <clears> no room to put them no place. So... I, I try to kinda of find the older stuff out there. If it if it does on eBay especially, if it does show up. I'll buy, you know, old books. But there's not very many things for me to collect any you know, so Ray
0: probably uh, Ray probably told you she doesn't want you to be an iron game hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, I think some people would probably stay there. I'm a hoarder. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, you can't walk to your kitchen. But, but, you got you got to step over magazines and books piled to the ceiling, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I I even got kettlebells in front of the fireplace, so <laughs> so <laughs> I, I I loaded them to seventy five pounds so no one would pick up and run off with them, but uh, um, Yeah, you know, I I think if I had to do it all over again, I would collect something else. You know, Uh, maybe gasoline pumps. In fact, I got one of those in the (laughs) front room.
0: (laughs) Your very early Iron Man, Perry Raider magazines, like the first, oldest one you got. That that really back then was probably like a like what like five or six or you you tell me just like photocopied pages or something, wasn't it? It was very small, like a.
3: Yeah, it was small. The first issues he put out were uh, uh, more like a, a photocopy. I don't know what the machine's called. I can't remember what it's called anymore, but it's like a photocopy. The first three issues, and they were poor copies. You could hardly read them. Uh, the first issue here sold, uh, what was it, four or five years ago. Th- there's only three known issues out there right now of, of Perry's first magazine. Uh, the first one was called Super Physique. And then you went to Iron Man in Volume Two. I mean, Volume One, Number Two. That sold for twenty-eight hundred dollars. Wow! And I think if one would come on the market today, you'd probably fetch close to five grand. So it's a very expensive magazine. But I do have.
0: How many pages was that first one?
3: uh, I think it was like ten or fifteen pages. It wasn't. It wasn't many. Okay. You know, but almost unreadable. He only put out 50 issues of the first magazine. So, consequently, like I said, there's probably only three out there right now that anybody wow. knows of. Like, I, I had the volume one, number five, and the issues got better. He, I guess he went through a printer by then. So, uh, the issues got better as they went along. Uh, by volume three, there was really nice magazine. You know, still the smaller ones. I think he went... Then about 1968, you know, it remained as one of those little, little magazines, and then it kind of got a little bit bigger. And then when John Bailey bought it, it got a little bit bigger, but uh, uh, it was, it was always small looking, but it had tremendous mm-hmm. amount of information in it. The
0: print and was you, very small volumes, too.
3: Yeah, very small. Oh yeah, Jeez. You know, if he was an old guy, you probably couldn't even see what the hell was written on it. You know, you'd know, use a magnifying <laughs> glass, but first six volumes uh, today, I, uh, I think they're all worth in, in anywhere from, like I said, the first one, $2,800, uh, four or $500 a piece, you know, the first volumes, and, and from there on, probably about $75, $80. Uh, so, tremendous amount of money in, in those first six volumes, uh, if you're collecting them for that reason. I, I, I never collected anything because it was worth something. I collected stuff because I liked it. And I I think a lot of people make, make the mistake. They collect it for the money and then they turn around (coughs) and try to sell it and find out it wasn't really worth that much money to somebody else. But, but, uh, right. uh, And, you know, I I tell you, you don't enjoy stuff when you collect it for money. You know, uh, you know, I have a passion because I like this stuff. So, but in, 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 uh, it Actually, does go up in money as as the years go by. So who knows what it'll be worth, say 20, ten years from now, or maybe it'll be worth nothing. Who knows? You know. So I I really don't care. You know, doesn't matter to me. Right,
0: Yosma, We have time for one last question. You were the founder and editor of one of the best iron game magazines ever, The Iron Master, and it ran from 1989 to 2000. And I know from talking to you for 25 years how much work that was. And just you and your wife, Ray, did all the work. So tell us how that got started, you know, a little bit about it and how much work it was for you and Ray. Well,
3: how that started is when Bob Heiss got the AWA going and he asked me if I would run his contest in Utah. And I agreed to do that. So I figured I'd put out a little magazine to the people that uh, would indicate what the contests were and how they came about. So March 1989, I put out the first issue, which was, I don't know, it wasn't too many pages, but but uh, I put that out, and all some people are interested. So I put out another issue and had a little more weightlifting stuff on it, and, and uh, more people kind of interested, and and eventually, you know, the magazine grew to 60 pages, uh, and. Of course, my wife used to type all, and this was before a computer. We didn't have a computer, so she typed the whole thing on her little typewriter we had. And, and my son would help me, Jay, which was my younger son at the time he was living at home, so he would help us once in a while do stuff. And I tell you, it was a tremendous amount of work, uh, especially towards the end. We had almost close to 1,000 customers at one time before I moved out wow. here and had no time for it. So and we used to put these things in little you know, envelopes and and glue the envelope, put the stamp on it, handwrite everything. Yeah, you know, it it was it was lots of work. And and mm-hmm. never mind the research just to put out the magazine. I spent months and months doing research for something, you know, to put it in that magazine. So I tell you, if you're thinking of putting out a magazine, don't. It's it's too much work. Remember that time about five or six
0: years ago? Yeah. Yeah, you and me were thinking about it for a while there, but then then you talked me out of it. Remember that?
3: Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That was so uh, funny. yeah. I'm glad and, you talked me it, out it, of it, Osmo. Yeah. And it, I, I tell you, there's no <laughs> money to be made anyway. So if you're doing it for money, forget it. There's no money to be made. Cause unless you take a lot of advertisement, you know, you can't make nothing on it. It's just a passion I had because I wanted to put out this information to people out there. And I enjoyed the research myself. So, but, you know, it drove my wife crazy doing all this stuff, you know. And bless her heart. She... Uh, She's into it as much as I am. She likes this stuff, and you know, so, uh, you know, unless your wife likes her, all this stuff around your house, so you're not, you know, she's got to kick your ass out, <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah. So if you're wow. getting into this kind of deal, make sure your wife enjoys what you're doing, you know.
0: Well, you know, you always kept the quality high. I mean, that was about the highest quality magazine you could you could get. I mean, every issue was top quality, so... You know, I know you put so much work into it. I remember the last issue, and when you were joking with me on the phone, and you would tell, you were just, you felt like a thousand pounds was lifted off your back. You were so happy to be, you just relieved to be finished with it. Absolutely, absolutely. I tell you, <laughs> yeah, that's right.
3: Maybe, maybe ten thousand pounds.
0: You know, I put it out
3: three. You know, I was supposed to come out three times a year, and sometimes I didn't make it. You know, we was, we did it for about eleven years, but. You know, I don't know. It was, it, was, it seemed like I just got one done. And it seemed like the next one was, you know, you had to get the next one out. And, and three, yeah. four months would go by so quickly. Uh, it's hard to realize that unless you're doing that, you know.
0: You couldn't, you couldn't rest th- too long, you know. You rest one or two no, days and then you got all. to get ready to do the next one.
3: Yeah, the, the, absolutely. And I try to be ahead. You know, I first started out, I'm going to be one issue ahead. Well, that went out the window after the second, third one, you know. You're never ahead. You're always behind. So, like I said, don't do it.
0: <laughs> well, Osmo, that's going to about do it and wrap things up. And it was a pleasure to speak with you. And I want to thank you so much for your time. And thanks again for being on the show.
3: Yeah, Thank you, Bob. It was a pleasure being on the show. And uh, maybe we can do it sometime again because uh, there's a lot to discuss yet that I didn't bring up. All right. Thank you, Bob. Mm-hmm.
5: Don't be a flamingo, you have to do your squats. Don't be a flamingo, real lifters work their legs.
3: That's going to do it for this edition of Natural Strength Night on
1: MindForceRadio.com. Please bookmark that website, MindForceRadio.com. Bob is always looking for new writers for naturalstrength.com
5: who are old school, hardcore, write with passion, and have a strong anti-steroid
3: stance. He also wants your training questions so they can be answered on the show. Please send your articles and training questions to Bob at mindforceradio
5: at earthlink.net. Thanks for listening. See you next time.